Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Sometimes you just need to escape to get to safety. Find out how to do exactly that in today's episode. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. How are you doing this evening, Shihan? Sri, I am doing fantastic. Good to talk to you again. Great to talk to you too, Shihan. Today's episode is going to focus on all of the Hizushi techniques, or mm. also known as escapes. Is that sure. the right translation? Did I miss yep. anything there? Nope, that's right. So let me just talk really quickly about the Hizushi parts of the chart. So there's two reasons that we have them. One has to do with sort of the escalation of a uh, violent encounter. And then the second one is they become pieces of bigger techniques later. So in the first scenario, we're talking about that continuum of violence that can happen that starts with just awareness. So you're aware of the potential of violence. You may be in a fringe area or, you know, at a bar or something like that where people can act in inappropriate ways and fights can start and violence can start and just being aware of, of what's happening around you. And then we sort of move on to the second level of that escalation, which is avoidance, which is, you know, realizing something is happening or things are escalating or getting out of control or you're starting to hear violent language or, or you're seeing body motions by people that lets you know that violence potentially could happen. And then you, you leaving, right? You completely avoiding that issue. And then the next step is potentially you've become involved in the situation in some way or the other. You're either directly attacked or you're sort of swept up in the in the moment and somebody puts their hands on you. And your your first response um, is really to escape because that that is truly the essence of self-defense. Self-defense isn't you know, using your cool jujitsu technique to slam somebody down on the concrete, you know, and then punch them in the face. That That's a little further down that escalation of response. The first, like, actual physical response where the hands of the enemy are on you is to escape. And that's what Hazushi is for, so that you can mechanically escape their grip and then literally run away, right, and get away. So that's that's really the first reason we learn Hazushi and it's the one that people understand the most because it just makes sense at the beginning hey I can I can escape but then later if you think about it and we'll talk about it in a little bit a lot of those movements those physical movements of Hazushi are actually things that happen when you're about to do another technique right a way that you move your body to release a grip and allow you to throw somebody or allow you to do an Aikijitsu technique or a weapon defense technique. So they, they play two roles. So as we go through talking about them, I'll explain that. Why are there no more Hazushi techniques in, in blue belt or brown belt or beyond? Well, I think it's just that they're not called out. So let's take an example of just, the, you know, probably one of the very first ones that you learn, which is wrist grab, Hazushi. Now, with the wrist grab Hazushi, uh, the person reaches out with, uh, as an example, with their right hand and they grab your left wrist, right? So everything's happening sort of on one side. And then you sort of step forward with your left foot 
and you leave your hand in place and then you push your left elbow against their elbow and that sort of snaps your hand out between their index finger and their thumb you can escape right you can you can pull that hand out in a very mechanical way and then you can run away but if you really think about it in other areas wrist grab ude tori also has that hazushi in it he grabs the same wrist right he reaches with his right hand he grabs your left wrist you reach out with your right hand and grab his wrist and then the very first move you do before you end up in that udigarami is to do that hazushi right is to move that elbow forward pop your hands out so that you can now pull his arm and put him into uditori so it's not that there is no more hazushi techniques after yellow belt they just start to become embedded in the techniques that you learn at blue belt and brown belt and above if i were to escape and not have to follow through with the uditori then that's a success right absolutely but if you're in a situation where uditori is necessary you still actually begin that technique with a wrist grab hazushi. Another one that would be a great example of that is the hazushi from rear choke, where you raise up your arm, say as an example, you raise up your left arm straight up towards the ceiling, and then you turn your body, and that causes the attacker's wrist to bend in a way that uh, is limited, and then you're able to sort of peel out of that, out of that choke and escape. But that exact hazushi is also the beginning of rear choke taitoshi. So where you put your hand up in the air and you spin and you unhinge, you know, from that rear choke. But then, of course, you continue your movement and you grab his hip and his arms are wrapped across your chest and then you throw in your taitoshi and he goes to the ground. So, again, it's not that they disappear or there aren't more of them. It's that they... You've learned the concepts while you're at white and yellow belt, and then they become incorporated into your techniques later on. Very cool. Thank you. That's a, that's a new fold in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Going to make you go back and look at all of them again and say, huh. Ah, definitely. Definitely will be. And I'll be looking for sort of escapes that I can do if I can get away with them in, in the more advanced uh, intermediate stuff as well. Absolutely. And I think they're they're really, really key and important, which is why they're in the first two ranks, right? Because, you know, you've been around jiu-jitsu a long time. The attrition rate in jiu-jitsu is incredibly high uh, just because it's a very tough martial art. And escapes are so important that we teach them up front because if someone leaves after six months or a year or, you know, even two years, we, we've made sure that they know how to at least escape from being grabbed. And that's really key. And it truly is that essence of self-defense. You don't have to always go in and engage and do some technique. Sometimes you, you have to, but sometimes it's just simple to mechanically escape and move away from the person who's attacking you. And maybe they choose a, an easier victim, or maybe they're even just mentally surprised at how easy you were able to unlock and disengage for them when they really thought they had you. And that kind of mentally takes over the situation. Walking away with that kind of knowledge is time and money well spent, which is more than I can say for a lot of different martial arts. <laughs> so let's go through the, the charts real quick and, and we'll talk about them. So on the white belt chart, the first one, as you talked about, is wrist grab, Hazushi. Mm -hmm. Yep. So uh, as we described before, this is where someone reaches out and they just, you know, they grab onto your wrist. They're doing it for one of a couple of reasons. One is either to, you know, drag you somewhere to, you know, to pull you somewhere. 
Um, or they may just be, you know, grabbing your wrist so they can punch you with their, their other hand or, or whatever, but they've taken an aggressive and, and dominant role. And so, you know, you mechanically, as we described before, will use the concept of putting all of the dynamic pressure against one digit, against the thumb, as opposed to fighting against four digits, against all four fingers. So a lot of the escapes have to do with how do we mechanically work against the weak points of, of some kind of grab or hold? And so when you leave your hand in place and you move your body forward and you touch your elbow to the outside of their elbow, you know, you are essentially putting the dynamic pressure against their thumb and it's very easy to allow your arm to just pop out and escape as opposed to just trying to pull away where you're actually pulling against their fingers, which is much, much stronger. Um, this, this is using the weakness in the, in the grip for you to be able to get away. Can you talk a little bit about the positioning of the feet and what they need to do? Sure. So, you know, when they're grabbing onto you, I'm just going to pick one side. They reached out with their right hand. They grabbed your left hand. I'm going to have my left foot forward. Everything is going to happen on the left side. I'm going to, you know, lean forward uh, towards that person. I'm going to move my left elbow towards his right elbow on the outside and really lean my body weight in. That's going to give the most power. And then just my hand will just pop out. I don't want to try to pull my hand away. I want to leave it in place exactly where he's holding it, not go against his resistance at all. And then once I pop you know, through his thumb and then my arm is out, I can escape. How about cross wrist grab? Okay, so now the person, instead of grabbing what I call straight on, where they just reached forward and they grabbed the hand that was directly on the side of uh, the hand that they're using to grab, they're reaching across so maybe he's using his right hand and he's reaching across to your right hand. He's reaching across in front of your body. So this escape is is pretty simple, but the concept of this technique is used over and over again later on in, in weapon defense and Aikijitsu and a, and a few other pieces of, of jiu-jitsu. So essentially all I'm going to do is I'm going to open my hand. I'm going to open my right hand. My thumb will be facing the ceiling, will be pointed to the ceiling. And then I drive my thumb up and over his wrist. So my, my thumb is coming up and then going to the left in an arc and then popping down towards the ground. And again, I'm using that weakness in the grip through the thumb to simply pop my hand out between the finger and the thumb, and I've essentially used the same concept I did the first time. But because of it, it's a cross grip, I, I need to find the direction of the thumb, which in this case is going to be upward, and come up against the thumb, and then come over the top of the wrist and, and pop out. Is the footwork the same step forward a little bit with the right foot? Yeah, you you want to have your supporting foot forward uh, on this one. On the first one where your left foot is forward, it's it's because you want to you know actually move your body kind of forward, right? So you're able to touch your elbow to his elbow. On this one with your right foot forward, it's just a little bit more of a supportive position as you you know circle your hand up and over and escape. And if you think about it too, not to get too deep into it, that motion is the same motion you use when someone does a cross wrist. And you're going to do a Kote Gyash. It's the, it's the exact same beginning motion. The only difference is in Kote Gyash, as your thumb is coming up over the top of his wrist, you are going to pass his hand into your left hand and then begin to do Kote Gyash with both your hands involved as opposed to the escape I just come up over the top and, and pop through and, and move away from the person. I've also seen some people do it in a slightly different way where the hand turns clockwise and my ridge hand will go against the uke's 
wrist or something and you push away from that. Is that incorrect or is it another variation? It's not incorrect as long as you can demonstrate both. And the reason that would be important is because one, the first one that we just described is the lead up to a cote guiache. And the one that you described where your hand actually circles down and under and then the tegatana the hand blade or the ridge hand side comes up against the back of his hand and escapes is um, sort of the beginning move for an ikajo. So they're, they're both important to know. Are they both required for, uh, for testing purposes? At least one is required. <laughs> so demonstration of, of either one um, would be, you know, would definitely be appropriate. Two on one wrist grab. Yep. So two-on-one wrist grab is, again, working with those thumb mechanics, right? If you think of somebody reaching down with both their hands and grabbing your wrist, there's going to be eight fingers behind your wrist, and there'll be two thumbs in front of your wrist. So instead of going against eight fingers, we go against two thumbs. And I will use my right hand as an example. There, They've grabbed my right hand. So I'm going to have my right foot forward in a supportive position. I'm going to reach over his arms and kind of through the hole that's between his arms and grab my own hand in a handshake type of position. And then I'm going to drop my elbow of my right arm slightly and then pop uh, with a little you know, snapping motion, pop my hand back up and out through his thumbs. And of course, that can also be done in an upward position. So if you can imagine yourself like doing a, a shuto or a karate chop down towards somebody's head and them grabbing your arm uh, with both of their hands sort of up in the air. So they're stopping your hand from coming down towards their head. That's another way that they can grab two on one. And you simply reverse what I just described. So instead of coming over the top and grabbing your hand, you're going to come under the bottom and come up through the hole in between his arms and grab your hand in a handshake position and snap down through the thumbs. So conceptually, it's it's more important to understand the mechanics of how you're doing it and why you're doing it so that you're going against the weak part of the grasp than it is, you know, thinking about all the various me mechanics, right? I look down right away, I see where the thumbs are, and I immediately know that's where I'm putting all my energy against so that I can escape. Can you talk a little bit more about sort of a, a handshake position where you're grabbing your own hand, do both thumbs have to be basically pointing up your thumbs? Yes, both of the thumbs will be on the top. It's almost as if you were clapping, making a clapping motion. Um, you'll see both of your, you know, both of your thumbs are facing upward. And then you're just going to clasp your fingers uh, and then, you know, you can pull out. Now, I have seen some people, especially people that are a little bit smaller, they'll make a fist with their right hand. And they'll come through and they'll just palm the whole fist and pull it out that way. It does work. It absolutely does work. It's just not as secure of a grip as doing sort of the handshake position, which is a much tighter grip. You said smaller people favor this variation. Does it feel like it has more power or do you feel that the clasp is more powerful? I wouldn't say the clasp is more powerful. It's just more secure. When you grab your own your own fist and somebody's really holding onto you hard or trying to pull you somewhere, it's very easy for the other hand, right, the hand that's kind of grasping their wrist to slip off. Um, whereas if you clasp your hands, they're not they're not going to slip apart. But like I said, I've I've seen them both done successfully. I'm always just looking for the version of whatever technique that is the most secure, and that's the one that I'll typically teach first. I've seen people almost elbow the attacker in the jaw as you pull out. 
Is that a good thing? Is that what we should be going for? Well, it's probably overkill. <laughs> I mean, it really what it is is when you reach down and you and you clasp your own hand, there's a little bit of a drop of your right elbow underneath. Maybe it goes down an inch or two, and then your hands come back directly towards you. Uh, not that I have to raise my elbow up in order to like pretend like I'm hitting him in the jaw, but that I'm I'm bringing the hands back towards my chest is is what's more important. How about front choke? So front choke is a very simple escape, and it's using the exact same concept we've been talking about the whole time. When somebody just chokes you, they've got basically the two thumbs in the front and the eight fingers in the back, or at least the eight fingers along the side. It's much easier to go against the two thumbs. So essentially, you're just going to bow your head forward, escaping through the thumbs, like bringing your head down between his arms and it goes right against the thumbs and it's very easy to break and then I'm going to just quickly and in a very small motion duck my head it doesn't matter which side but I'm going to describe I'm going to duck my head to the left underneath his right wrist staying very close and then I'm going to step away into a defensive position I'm going to I'm going to step back and away very important concept of how to move your upper body um, when there's a, a front choke type position that comes in handy later when we're doing things like Sokum and Ariminagi and, and a few other different types of more advanced techniques. When you're ducking your head under, should we be paying attention not to look down? Or is there anything to do with that or dropping the level or, or it really is kind of ducking your head under? You certainly can drop the level a little bit in order for you to sort of comfortably come down and underneath the arm. It doesn't really make a difference if you're looking down. Uh, it, it's You don't want to be looking down when you're done. When you're finished with the whole technique, you definitely want to be looking at the opponent. But you know, just for that one second, as your head dips forward, it's it's almost as if you were bowing to the person, right? In a, in a you know, Japanese kind of bow, as your head just comes down very quickly and pops under to the left and then comes back up and you're, and you're looking directly at that person as you're stepping away. Are you using your head as a... Um sort of resistance against the his arm that is uh, reached out to your neck? Like pushing against it, I mean? No, not so much. It's just that if you stay very close to the wrist, right? If, you're, if you can actually brush your head around the person's wrist, that means you haven't bent over so far that he now changes his mind and grabs the back of your head and knees you in the face, right? It, it kind of keeps you at a level that's easy and appropriate for you to control as opposed to bending down like so low that you're out of control and he'll take advantage and knee you in the face with a Hitsui Gary. Rear choke. Uh, very easy technique. This is one of the first techniques where we start to talk about the way that a wrist bends. So we've been working on a lot of thumb-based stuff where we're going against the thumbs. Now we're going against the wrist and and how it mechanically works. So, you know, as I'm describing this, you know, the people who are listening can can kind of look at your own wrist. It it bends fairly far forward and backward, right? So your palm towards your wrist or the or the back of your hand towards your forearm doesn't move quite as far up and down, right? Bending your thumb back towards your forearm doesn't go too far. Bending your pinky towards your forearm doesn't go too far, right? So um, we see the limitations in all of those 
motions. The biggest motion that it can make is bringing your fingers and your palm towards your wrists. That's that's the broadest motion that it'll make, and, and that's kind of what the hand is made to do. The other three motions are, are much more limited. So on this one, we are essentially bending the back of the palm, or the back of the hand towards the forearm, and you see that it only goes so far. And then in this technique, we force it to go further than that, which forces the fingers open in order to save the wrist. So we, as an example, when they've uh, hand choked you from the rear, you're going to raise your left arm, as an example, straight towards the ceiling, keeping it very near the side of your head, almost pressing against your ear. And then you're going to spin your body in place counterclockwise or towards the arm that's raised, right? If I had raised my right arm, I would, I'd be turning clockwise, but I, I described my left arm, so I'm going to turn counterclockwise. And as I do this, it will cause his left hand, uh, the one that's uh, on the left side of your body because he's behind you, it'll cause that to bend um, backwards as far as it can go, and then it won't be able to go any further, and his fingers will open off of your neck, and uh, you'll be able to uh, release that choke by spinning out. So very simple mechanical technique. Just to clarify, Gian, so you said to spin in place as opposed to sort of moving backward as you spin? Yeah, I mean, you're really going to have to stay in place. Um, no, nobody's really going to let you move that much if they're trying to you know, choke you out, right? They've got their fingers around the front of your throat. They're using the strength of their fingers in order to crush your trachea. So you're not really going to be going anywhere. So just spinning directly in place is going to be the most uh, effective way of doing this. And it's just one quick sweeping motion, hand towards the ceiling, turn counterclockwise, and it should peel right off your neck. Uh, if you do this technique really slowly with a partner, you can really look at the mechanics that happen um, uh, to that person's choke. And is there, as you turn your body around and your arm is in the air? Mm-hmm. As you turn around, is, does it, does the arm have to come down to further push his choking hand off of your neck? No, not at all. Just leave the arm straight up in the air and just spin in place. It'll it'll peel right off. Now, if you're moving into another technique, right? If you're going to finish that by, you know, grabbing onto the person, maybe because you were going to do, you know, a negoshi or something like that or maybe you're going to push them away once you've released it, then the arm motion will continue to move past the point that it needs to to escape because you're you're moving on to some other type of movement but no the the escape happens with your arms still straight up in the air i think that that makes it very clear because i've seen sort of variations where people are not even really spinning and just kind of bearing down on the attacker's wrist and arm you know and not right. really spinning around that much they're, they're trying to do it with a sweeping motion of their arm right they're they're thinking like a sweeping motion of the arm is what takes the, you know, the choke off, and it, and it really isn't. The mechanics of that choke is bending the wrist backwards into an uncomfortable spot where it forces the fingers open. Then you can do some kind of movement after that, but you simply can spin in place and just move away, right? It will, it'll peel right off. Oh, here's one of my favorites, a lapel grab. Sure, lapel grab. So again, we're doing the exact same mechanics as we're doing on the on the choke, on the rear choke. We're forcing the back of the hand against the wrist. And of course there's limited motion. So it's going to make sure that the fingers have to peel open in order for that person to save the wrist. So if they reach out with their right hand and they grab your left lapel as an example, right? The left collar of your jacket, you are going to um, be putting pressure on the back of that person's wrist 
which will cause his wrist to bend backwards and the fingers to release the grip. Now, you have to do something first simply because of the limitations of, of clothing. So you need a very stable surface, like, like your neck was a very stable surface when you did the rear choke escape. You need the jacket or the, or the lapel to now become a stable surface. So I will reach and grab my own lapel under his hand, right? So beneath his hand, and I will pull it down very tight against my body. So now that there's no movement in that side of my clothing, then I come up with my left hand, fingers facing the ceiling. I will simply put my hand on the back of their wrist. Thumb will be underneath their wrist. Fingers will be on the top. And then I will begin to turn my body to the right, right? Turn my body clockwise and really snap my left arm straight forward as quickly as possible while maintaining that very tight grip on my lapel. And that is going to bend that person's wrist back to a painful point where his fingers will release and I'm, I'm able to just push his hand away. So that's the most efficient way to, to take somebody's hand off your lapel. On behalf of the dojo, Xi'an, I'm going to have to ask, how do you do this against someone like Big Dave? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, if the situation was uh, a true threat, a true threat situation, Big Dave, as an example, and I'm I'm certainly not picking on you out there, Dave, because that would just be stupid. I I would say that person's intent is not to get the most secure grip on your jacket possible, because that was his only intent. Right. They're, they're simply grabbing onto your clothing so that they can punch you in the face or they can pull you somewhere or, or, or whatever. Right. They they truly have nothing against your lapel unless you're wearing, a you know, a 1960s jacket or something. But they you know, so so in class, we get very focused on the technique that we're working on. Right. I'm going to grab your lapel and now you're going to work on the escape and the, all the focus goes there. And then a person can get an incredibly tight grip, especially if they're very big and strong, like like sent by Chris or, or you know, like Big Dave or, or there's other people in our dojo that are big and strong. And then it becomes incredibly difficult to do this technique. But if you can imagine the person kind of walking towards you angry and they're going to grab onto your, onto your jacket and then they're going to start punching you in the face, right? That initial grab, the second they touch your jacket and you just, you know, you grab your own lapel and tighten it up and just snap that thing to the side, it's going to pop right off because their intent isn't to resist or stop you from getting their hand off the lapel. That was just to keep you close so they could do something else to you. So it, it, it actually becomes much easier to do that. And that applies to any technique, right? Anybody in class, once you know and you've all agreed we're going to practice and work on this technique, can resist the technique that you're doing. Anybody can res resist every single technique that you're doing in class because they know what you're doing, right? You, you've agreed to practice it, and they know how the technique works, so therefore they know exactly how to resist it. Um, and that can be very frustrating in class. It's certainly a waste of time and not good training, not good training for your partner. In reality, in, in very dynamic motion of a, of a fight, things are moving very quickly, and there isn't just a focus on one specific spot just, just to resist you. Uh, it's, it's a lot easier to work with. Thanks, Sheehan. Really appreciate the context there, too. So that's all the techniques on the white belt chart. I'd like to move on to the yellow belt. Great. So the first one is side headlock. Yes. So in the side headlock, we are essentially 
starting to mechanically show you how to release your head from one of many headlock positions. And the concepts be behind the escapes that we use both on the Hazushi part of the chart and then in our self-defense jujitsu and weapon techniques, etc., are trying to teach people that you can't pull your head out of a headlock simply because in most people, unless you're a professional NFL football player, your head is bigger than your neck. So once somebody puts their arm around your neck, it's it's very hard to to pull your head out simply because, you know, you've got your body on one side of the arm, sort of a skinnier part in the middle that he's holding onto, and then a fatter part at the other end, and it's 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 just all plugged up. You can't pull your head out. Yet that's the very natural reaction for somebody to try to pull their head out of a headlock. So this first one mechanically starts showing you how do I open his arm. So the thing that's giving me the headlock is really what I need to work against. So mechanically, how do I open his arm from the tight headlock position into a looser position so that I can easily take my, my head out? So on this one, on side headlock, the first concept that we're, we're doing is I don't even mechanically have to take it out. I can just cause some discomfort to this person take the attention away from the headlock and they'll make the choice to release it to start with. And I think that's, that's awesome, right? That's, that's the best way to do it. When you can make them decide to stop attacking you, that's the best way. And then if you can't convince them, then you have to move on to this, you know, the secondary mechanical ways. But on this one, all I really have to do is reach up and, and over their shoulder with my left arm. Let's say he's got my head in a, in a right headlock. He's got my right arm, his right arm around my head. I'm going to reach up and over his right shoulder, and I'm simply going to place, I like to use the side of my middle finger, but you can use your index finger. You can use the, the shuto side of your hand. I'm going to place it underneath the person's nose, and I'm going to press in against the philtrum piece, which is that little skin area between your nose and your lip, and then up into the bone of the nose. I'm going to press that up and back in a very quick arching motion. And that's going to be so uncomfortable for the person that is his head and body are going to begin to lean backward. And then he has to make balance choices at that point. You know, how long is he going to hang on? If he hangs on to the end, he's just going to fall down on his back and on his head. If he begins to let go of the choke, he'll be able to sort of relieve the pain and, and save himself. So we've caused him to make that choice. Rear hug free. So rear hug free, uh, somebody has grabbed you around the waist under your arms. So when we say free, we mean that your arms are not trapped in the hug. It's a dangerous position because the person could be holding you there for someone else to hit you. They could be about to lift you up in some sort of like wrestling suplex move and slam you down to the ground. They may run you forward into a wall. So it's, it's a position that you definitely want to uh, try to get out of. And there's actually multiple ways to get out of this one, but the, the first one is sort of that instant gratification, I understand what's what's going on type of, of technique, and that's where we press a, a pressure point on the back of the hand that's pretty painful and make the person want to let go of the grip. And of course, the harder they grab, the more exposed that little nerve bundle is. And that nerve bundle runs between your middle finger and your ring finger. And it's down your hand about an inch or a little bit more of an inch from the crease between those two fingers. And there's just a soft dent. And actually, you know, if you if you press on your own hand right in that spot, you will feel sort of a little hollow in the, in the back of the hand. And 
So they've they've gripped you sort of in a hand over hand position where they've got as I'll I'll describe they've put their right arm around your waist and then their left arm comes across around your waist and they grab their own wrist with their left hand. So they're exposing the back of their left hand. I am now going to take the knuckle the of my middle finger. So if you make a fist, the middle finger knuckle will tend to stand out just a little bit. I'm going to put that into that little divot between the ring finger and the middle finger. I'm going to put a lot of pressure into that, and then I'm going to put my left hand on the back of my right hand so that I can really use two hands to dig that down into the nerve bundle and give it just a little bit of a wiggle while pressing really hard, and that will give sort of a shocking pain to that person's hand, and they'll want to release their grip really quickly. You can also do that you know, in a more extreme case as a strike. You have to be very precise to do it as a strike, but you can, you know, use the same knuckle in the same place, but really go in there and just hit it as hard as you possibly can to release that. Now, of course, that's only appropriate if they're gripping you the way I just described, right? Where they're exposing the back of one of their hands in how they grip you. If they're doing other types of grips, there are other uh, escapes that you learn more in your jujitsu techniques at, at higher levels, like reverse udigarami and, and a few other things, but that that's the basic escape. Just a quick clarification. You said to use the knuckle of the middle finger to put that in the hollow. Is it the knuckle and the fist, or is, can you use the, I guess I'd call it the knocking knuckle? It is the knocking knuckle. It is the, it's the knuckle that's halfway down the length of your finger. That's the one that you want to put in there. So uh, you don't want to use your fist knuckle, the ones that are on the back of your hand, but you want to use the one that's in the middle of the finger. Is there any way to brace that against to make it more powerful? Well, that's yeah, that's where you use your left hand, as I described, right? So you put you know you put that middle finger knuckle into the divot in their hand, then you take your left hand and put it on the back of your right hand as as sort of a base to add more power because now you're using two arms instead of just one, and you really increase the pressure as hard as you can using both hands to increase the pressure, and then dig that knuckle in with a small wiggle, and that will usually make people. Uh, They'll, they'll jump for sure. Now, I will say, again, in class, like I described before, once you know this technique and you've done it many times and, you know, you're in class for two years and your whole concept of pain and damage and stuff is quite different than it was the first day you walked in, you can resist it, right? It'll it'll hurt, but you'll just be like, oh, okay, all right, you know, but you don't have to let go. But just because mentally you've got to a place where you realize you're not being damaged and uh, you you can take the pain and you know what the person's doing. But if you remember how it felt the very first time somebody did it to you, that's how it feels to somebody on the street. They have no idea what you're doing and, and why you're doing it. So it's going to be quite shocking to them. One more question on the, the knuckle. Should we push the middle finger knuckle out a little bit, like putting your thumb behind the finger? Or, or is it just purely a fist? Uh, you know, you can, I would say extend it a little bit. I wouldn't do it like with your thumb or any, you know, any other mechanical way, just other than extending it a little bit. Um, I just know that when I make a fist, the knuckles of my middle finger and my index finger seem to stick out a little further than my ring finger and my uh, pinky finger. So it's very easy for me to, you know, just maybe raise my middle knuckle just a slight bit so that it extends uh, a little further. But that's pretty much it. Okay, thank you. Escape from rear hug. So now the rear hug uh, is all the way around your arms. So your arms are now 
trapped by your side and the person still could throw you to the ground or, or push you against a wall or whatever, but you don't have the ability to do something with your, your hands, uh, with your arms because they're trapped against your side. So mechanically, we need to release ourselves from this. And what you have to picture yourself as is a tube, right? Your body is now sort of a, a tube that's being grasped. Your arms are down by your side. You're standing on two feet. How can a, how can a tube escape from being, being grabbed? And what I like to describe is instead of being like a tube, be like a balloon, so, you know, if you don't fill a balloon completely with air, you can sort of squeeze on one end of it and the balloon, the air in the balloon will move to the other end of the balloon and sort of make it expand. And you can kind of manipulate where the air is in the balloon. That's how they make balloon animals, right? So essentially you, you want to become bigger in a certain part of your body so that you can slip through the grasp. And a very easy way to do that is to want his grip to move towards your shoulders because when they're in the middle of your arms, it's very easy to hold on to you. But as it moves towards your shoulders, it'll, it'll start coming around the curve of your shoulder, right? And then it becomes very loose and very easy for you to escape. So that's the direction you want his grab to go. And so how do I get it there? So one of the easiest ways to get it there is to Put your hands together in front of you almost in a, a, a praying kind of position so that you have opposing forces. And you'll notice when you do that, your elbows slightly splay out from the side of your body. You are now starting to form a different shape than a tube. You're almost forming like a pyramid or you're starting to move the air in the balloon kind of towards the top, right? So now when I press my hands together, I can start to lift my elbows up. As I begin to lift my elbows up, I also want to drop my body lower, right? So two counter motions, elbows slightly moving up, body slightly moving down. And now his arms will begin to slip because he doesn't have a straight vertical surface that he can hold on to. Now it's, now it's kind of an angled surface and, and his grip then begins to slip and you can drop yourself out underneath his grasp. Now you are going to have to sort of swing your arms to swing his arm up and over your head as, as you get out from his grip. But the, the concept that's more important is understanding how he has a firm grip on a stable surface and then you change the shape of that surface and now his, his grip becomes unstable. So again, hold your hands in front of you like you were praying. Begin to lift your elbows. As your elbows begin to lift, start squatting lower and lower. You'll feel his arms slip up towards your shoulders and he begins to lose grip. And then you can just, you know, swing your elbow up and over and move your body back and away. It's a very natural motion to kind of throw his arms over the top of your head as you escape. What do you do if somebody's holding on really tight or is that not good training and not a realistic context? Well, I would say you want to practice this technique. So they need to hold um, appropriate for practicing this technique. But someone could be, you know, giving you the death grip. And simply this technique then would not be the appropriate response because he's probably holding you very low, uh, you know, around your elbows, uh, probably even very difficult to get your, you know, your hands in that praying position, right? So that's where we now escalate from Hazushi's. Uh, from the escapes, now we move to strikes, to a temi. 
And that's where you would then, you know, move your hip to the side and use your tetsui coming back against the person's groin. So now we've had to escalate beyond uh, hazushi because the hazushi wasn't appropriate anymore. And lastly, rear strangle. Uh, so rear strangle, um, just to clarify for everybody, is different than rear choke. So rear choke is when somebody puts both of their hands on your throat from behind. And rear strangle is where they wrap their entire arm, say your right arm, around your neck. And then they grab their hand, right? So my right arm goes around your neck. And then my left hand comes up and grabs my right hand. And then I use that crook of my arm to try to squeeze the air or, or the blood out. That's, that's what a, a strangle is. And so here's one of the ones I was talking about before where mechanically we were showing you how to open the arm as opposed to just trying to get your head out. So what you're going to do here is you're going to um, reach up with your hands, with your palms facing yourself, and you're going to grab onto that person's arm his forearm, which is around your neck. You're going to put the middle finger of your right hand into the little space between his forearm and his bicep, and you're going to put your left hand at his wrist. You're going to not try to pull it away from your body. All you're going to do is you're going to roll his arm, because his arm is a tube, right? You're going to roll his arm from a tight spot onto your neck down onto your collarbones, right? So it's just a very small rolling motion as I drag it a little bit down onto my chest um, and you really could hold it there and he could try to choke you as hard as he wanted. And as long as you're not trying to resist the choke, but you're focused on holding his forearm to your upper chest, uh, you'll be able to resist it all day. But once that happens and I've rolled that down, I'm going to put my chin over the top of his arm. So now everything is completely secure and he can no longer manipulate his arm to where he wants to. It's now completely stuck to your body. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to step out the back door, is what I like to call it. I am going to step my left foot behind me and around his right side so that I can now begin to turn my body. I can, I can begin to turn my body towards him while holding his arm very tight to my chest. And what this begins to do is this begins to open up his grip. He doesn't feel like you're trying to pull that choke off because you're essentially allowing him to be as tight as he wants right on your body. So it's, it's very confusing as you begin to move your body and his arm has to move with your body because it's now attached to it. And as I turn around to my left and I begin to back out, it essentially opens his arm away from my neck and straightens it out. And then I can easily you know, maneuver my head. There's no time during that technique where I try to like pull my head out from his grip. I need to mechanically do this. And, and this is really difficult to describe in words. It's something that obviously you have to see your instructor do. But again, you're holding it to your chest. You're holding his right arm to your chest. I'm going to begin to turn to my left in a counterclockwise motion, taking a step with my left foot out to his right side. And then I turn completely around. So now I'm facing in the exact opposite direction as he and I'm still holding his arm as hard as I can to my collarbone area. But you'll notice at this point, his arm is almost completely straight and open, and you're able to just simply walk your head out 
from his rear strangle. So this is really important because we actually use this a lot in other techniques. There's a knife technique that you learn fairly early uh, where someone puts a knife against the back of your neck and you use a similar motion. And, and then there's a few other techniques later you, you use this specific escape for. So that's why we teach it early on so that uh, by the time you need it for weapon defense or other defenses, you're pretty darn good at it. Perfect. That covers all of the Hazushi techniques on the charts. Is there anything new that I guess you're starting to teach, Shihan, or or other scenarios where something else could be at play? So, you know, for Hazushi um, in particular, you know, these techniques are picked because they're precursors to other things. I mean, first of all, they're really good. They take care of the most common uh, attacks, right? Front choke, rear choke, a grab, a lapel grab, a rear hug, a rear hug free, a, a strangle, you know, those type of side headlock. Those things are common, you know, everyday attacks, and you should know how to get out of them. But they also are precursors to uh, movements that you're going to need to do at more advanced jujitsu techniques. Uh, so that's why they're taught there. I probably have another 30 type of Hazushis somewhere in notebooks that I've learned, you know, over the years. I think the important thing to know is that, you know, there's always a mechanical way to escape from somebody's grasp. And that is really important because uh, it's really hard to just do jujitsu with someone who's standing and holding on to you and every, and all the motion has stopped and it's a very static situation. So you really have to know mechanically how to maneuver your body in, in uh, situations like that. There's several other ones that we just do as part of other techniques. Uh, one that's coming to mind is like when somebody puts you in a full Nelson and you're either going to do like a Hizakatami or maybe you're going to do a Sakui Nagi. The very first thing you do you pop your elbows down to your sides and you push your head back and, and that breaks his full Nelson. And I suppose I could just escape at that point, but we've, we're, we move immediately into, into other techniques. But that first, very first movement that you do in, in both of those techniques is a Hazushi. It is an escape from that attack. Uh, and there's, and there's several of those, you know, along the way. So as you look at your charts, uh, as you move up through the ranks, um, just because something isn't labeled as Hazushi, you know, think about mechanically what happens. Where Where is the escape point where, you know, you undo his intended uh, grip? Um, and then you'll really begin to understand uh, the Hazushi. And last question. Uh, when I was visiting you down in Florida, I noticed some of your students there, they were demonstrating uh, sort of a, a knife to the throat. And, and, and I'm not sure, I think you called it a threat. And uh, there was a response to that. Do, where does that sort of land in the uh, self-defense escalation chart, and where does that come into play? We have many techniques that are threat. I think I may have just called out the name uh, to distinguish it from, like, a, a stab with a knife. But, like, if you think of the very first gun technique that you learn, which is a kote gash, it's the stick-up kind of thing. So the person didn't just reach out and shoot you or didn't just reach out and stab you immediately. They're using that weapon more as a threat to make you do something, like give me your money or give me your car keys or, or that kind of thing, right? So there's this period of time between when they take out their weapon and then when they actually use it on you to, to hurt you uh, that I consider to be sort of the threat period. I would also say probably 85 to 95% of all weapon uh, attacks in real life are more threat situations than they are uh, the actual attack. There are crazed people that want to shoot you and want to stab you, but more of them want 
you to do something or want something for you. So any any time you're hearing of an armed, you know, an armed robbery, right? Basically, is when somebody is using a weapon to make you give them something, money or or car keys or something of value or whatever. Um, and then sometimes in hostage situations, uh, it's also a threat, right? I I hold you from behind. I put a gun against the side of your head because I want the threat of me shooting you to make other people do what I'm telling them to do because they don't want to. They're your loved ones or your friends or you know, passengers on mass transit and they don't want to see you get shot. So they'll do whatever that person asks them to do because they're using that weapon as a threat. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the concept behind saying it's a, it's a threat. Uh, the, the one that you're referring to with, with the knife is just, it's, it's different than, uh, a stab, right? So if somebody stabs you, um, you obviously can do Cote Gyash, but you can also do Cote Gyash if they're just threatening you, right? If they're putting that knife against your chest or, you know, pointing it at your throat and yelling at you to to do something, you know, you certainly can do a Cote Gyash. But because the the position is a little more static, it's not dynamic, like the guy's not like swinging his arm out and trying to stab you in the gut. He's kind of just holding it against you, you have to create the dynamic motion. And and so in that technique in particular, you know, we, we very quickly push the, the weapon, you know, down towards their uh, abdomen or groin area, which leaves them very exposed to getting smacked in the face with a, with a nice ski and that'll disorient them. And then I can throw a, a Cody Gyashi. So I, I kind of had to create the dynamic motion that would have happened if he was stabbing me because he wasn't, he was just, he was just threatening. So I, so I do that with positioning and with, with striking. And that kind of goes to sort of the scenario based, um, self-defense practice that, that we all do at some level, but that you can do if you have a decent imagination. And I think it's really fun for the students. Um, describe one that I just did the other day. Uh, so we were doing, uh, actually, that technique that I just talked about, we were just doing it with a with a gun. So, if somebody puts a, a gun, you know, against your chest and is telling you to do something, right? You know that we can do that very small turn clockwise, right? We tap the back of the hand just to make sure that we move the gun and ourselves out of the line of fire. Then we we grip it, we come up underneath with our right hand, and then we spin into a Cody Giash, take him down to the ground, kneel on his elbow, and remove the gun. Uh, from his hand. So that, you know, everybody practices that technique in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. But you can also do it, again, where you have to create that dynamic motion, which is by grabbing that wrist, pushing it towards their groin area, leaving their face exposed, you know, hit them in the face, and then do a Kodi Giyash, take them to the ground. So what we did was we imagined a situation where someone uh, was in your house and they're maybe walking along the hallway coming towards your bedroom. And so I had that person walking down the hall, you know, the gun out in front of him a little bit, kind of in a protective, you know, scared manner, like someone who was invading your house would do. And I'm waiting right behind the wall of the door and I'm just waiting to see the gun. Right. I don't even care about that person. Right. And then I, as soon as I see the gun, I quickly reach out with my left hand, push it down towards his groin. I step out now that I'm safe, smack him in the face. And then I essentially throw him Cody Giyashi into the bedroom <laughs> onto the floor. And then, you know, I can finish with whatever finishing technique that, that I, I normally would. Now, it's the same as practicing it standing there in the dojo, but it puts it into like a, sort of a, a scenario that might happen to you in, in real life. Um, so I definitely urge people, especially when they're, you know, blue belts and above to 
start thinking about how do I do my techniques in a natural environment? How do I do it if I'm standing, you know, at an ATM machine or in a parking lot or against a wall or I just I'm about to step into my car or I'm in a crowd of people or, you know, any of those type of things. And, and then let's see how you would do your jujitsu techniques in in those type of scenarios. And I think it helps train the brain to be ready for what's going to happen uh, in in real life. Great. Now I'm thinking of topics for a future podcast. <laughs> and, I, you know, go have fun with it, right? Grab grab a partner and or maybe talk to your instructor at the school or whatever. And, it, you know, it might have to be a, a special class like on a Saturday or something because, you know, maybe the maybe the white belts aren't going to be involved. But, you know, you take a couple of folding mats or a couple of the mats and you and you bring them into the natural environment, whatever that may be, you know, a hallway or uh, you know, outside or, or whatever. And, and you try practicing your techniques in regular everyday street clothes in a, in a situation. Here's a great example. Take a piece of furniture, right? Take a, take a chair or a couch or something and, and sit on the, sit on the couch and then have somebody come up to you. You're, you're in a seated position on the couch and have them like grab your shirt and start pounding you in the face or just start, they're just going to start a flurry of punches. And then, Try to pull off a double leg or a kosotogaki or a nippon siyoinagi and, and find out how am I going to transition from a seated position to the position of the technique, right? And it, it takes you a couple of times to kind of figure out how that's going to happen. But it's, it's being able to do your jujitsu in multiple environments and multiple situations, just not in the, you know, clinical cleanse, you know, cleansed environment of a, of a dojo while wearing geese with all the room in the world to work on. You know, we, I've done exercises mainly with some of the military people that I've done training, but it, anybody can do it. They would make a box the size of an elevator car and just pad the entire thing. And then you just go in with a couple of people and they lock the box and the couple of people just try to beat you up. And like, how do you do your self-defense and your jujitsu and your ikajos and your reverse udigaramis and all that kind of stuff when you're in a, you know, a five by five box? It makes your brain have to figure these things out. And I think it's, it's good advanced training. Definitely topics for future episodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's got you thinking now. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd love to do a whole episode on on training in in uh, in natural environments. Um, you know, we can definitely talk about you know things that would happen in your house, uh, defending yourself in on ma- mass transit. You know how to how to handle a situation if uh, somebody starts shooting in a movie theater. You know, like those type of real life scenarios, and how does your jujitsu work in those in those situations where it's not just you and one other guy standing in a parking lot, you know, with a Japanese flute playing in the background and (laughs) a bird going caca, you know. (laughs) Awesome, Shion. You know, I'm definitely looking forward to it, but this was a a great podcast. I mean, we've covered all of the Hazushi techniques and then some, and uh, hopefully I brought some of the common mistakes that students, you know, even me going through this, have experienced with these techniques, but I think we've and got them covered now. Excellent. And just remember, they're they're like every other technique on the chart. They're concepts. Uh, it's more important to learn the mechanics and the concepts of everything you learn in jujitsu than to specifically limit your brain to exactly the way it's done on the chart, because real life changes very very quickly in a real altercation. So understanding the concepts, the mechanics, uh, how your opponent's body does and doesn't work is always much more important than 
you know, just exactly the way you've, you've uh, practiced it on, on the charts. So you need to take the time to mentally explore, do that training outside of the dojo, right? That mental training where you look through your notes and you think about your techniques. And uh, that, that really goes a long way to helping you become a, a much more well-rounded martial artist. Thank you so much, Jihan, and have a great night. You are welcome, Sri. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you.